should you care about CDN 77 to retain those 17 out of 20 people who click away due to buffering? CDN 77 is a global content delivery network optimized for video and backed by skilled 24-7 support. Visit cdn77.com slash packet pushers to get your free unlimited trial. Welcome to Day Two Cloud, and today we got a we got a security humdinger for you. Mick Douglas, managing partner at Infosec Innovations. Who says humdinger? I don't even know why why I said that, uh, Ned. But but it was quite a show, wasn't it? It really was, and we got into sort of does secure cybersecurity matter, and and why might it not matter as much as you think it does. So please enjoy this conversation with Mick Douglas, managing partner at Infosec Innovations. Mick Douglas, welcome to Day Two Cloud. And uh, man, I don't think you've been on the show before. In fact, I know that you have not. So why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Who are you and what do you do? Hey, everybody. My name is Mick Douglas. You can follow me at Twitter, at least for now. We'll see how Twitter goes at Better Safety Net. And I run a consultancy firm called InfoSec Innovations. And I'm a instructor for SANS and I'm a member of the Ains Research faculty as well. Okay, so Uber security nerd, uh, to, to say the least, Mick. Now, w- we had you on the show because you had this provocative uh, Twitter thread, and you argued in this Twitter thread that cybersecurity isn't important. I think that's exactly what you said right in the first tweet of that, which naturally grabbed a lot of people's attention. Because, of course, cybersecurity is important, Mick, or that's, you know, that's one way we could react to that. So uh, on the surface, even, I would say saying cybersecurity isn't important and then arguing for that is kind of an irresponsible thing. So so maybe you got to set us up for this thread, man. Uh, explain it. Uh, what are you getting at? Well, there's a couple things to unpack out of this. First of all, I think that from a business perspective, it really isn't important. The business is concerned about making money, selling stuff in cybersecurity in many instances is an active impediment to that. And if you are doing cybersecurity in that way, you need to get out of the business, hands down. What is even there's even a more subtle thing that I'm getting at or attempting to get at in that thread. And it's kind of a theme that I've been nudging against what is quote unquote conventional cybersecurity. And I think that there needs to be actually a lot fewer cybersecurity professionals. And what we think of as cybersecurity should actually be just a functional requirement of IT. When you buy a car, it comes with all the safety features enabled, set up, ready to go. You don't buy a car at dealership and then have to go to your neighborhood mechanic to get brakes and airbags all installed. And that's how we're doing IT right now. We're delivering criminally insecure products and people are deploying them, not knowing any better. They're using these defaults and they're getting crushed by the adversaries. And, you know, little wonder that the scoreboard shows what it does. So, you know, what we're doing doesn't work. If you don't like the output, reduce the input. And therefore, I think we need to start radically shifting how we do cybersecurity and what we think of as cybersecurity. And this is a thread to get that conversation started. But but you don't want, 
you said cybersecurity professionals. We have too many of them, and yet that is one of the great shortages out there. It's, it's talked about no, quite a lot. No, no, we have a we have a shortage of competent professionals. We have too many people that are in the field that are effectively script kiddies. We make a great deal of joking and fun at oh, look at this script kitty attacking my network, and yet there are far too many script kitty defenders. If you're the type of person that, you know, scans a file with an antivirus product and you're like, that's cool, that's an insurmountable barrier, congratulations, you're a script kitty because you don't understand the attacks, nor do you understand how your antivirus product works. And I realize that this is very controversial. I realize that this hurts to hear. And frankly, I'm taking a deliberately provocative stance. I'm not 100% correct. I know that. And yet, I think I'm more right than wrong when it comes to this. You're certainly going to raise some hackles when you tell a large swath of people that what they're doing is A, wrong, and B, ineffective. Well, so, it, it, it's, I, I'm, gonna, I, I'm actually going to nudge it even further, okay? okay? Not only what they're doing is ineffective, it's actually harming their organization. Well, expand on that. What do you mean that it's actively harming the organization? Well, so, so much of what we do as like computer security actually amounts to IT ritual, not to uh, just to, to play cards all face up. Last week, I was teaching SANS 504, which is hacker techniques and incident response. A lot of people come into that class thinking, hey, we're going to show you how to do incident response. And we actually do a little bit of a switcheroo on them. And we say, Yes, we'll show you incident response, but we're going to show you actually what attackers do, how they think, how they approach your network. And there's this one module in day two where we talk about attacks against Windows environments. And one of the things that's a very sobering and eye-opening uh, moment for students quite frequently is um, they'll be taught, you know, there's these guides out there that um, if you change the local administrator account from administrator to something else, it makes it hard for the attackers. And I just show them like, here's a script on GitHub that's actually accessing the user ID of the local administrator account. And so you could name it to whatever you want. The tool doesn't even slow down. <laughs> but congratulations, you now have this really convoluted naming convention of is it you know, machine name local administrator? Is it like some crazy key combo? Do you have to do this lookup? And like a lot, you know, they're not all as um, egregious as that, but a lot of the things that we do slow the machine down. You know, like how many agents do you have installed on your corporate machine? Mm -hmm. We do things like DLP. DLP does help but it is the thinnest of thinnest of protections. And yet it's also one of the most expensive security tools to deploy, maintain, let alone licensing. So, you know, there are things that we do. I'm not saying that we should pack it up, go home and like sit in a corner and cry. But what I am saying is we do need to critically review what we're doing because a lot of it really isn't moving the needle like we think it is. We're working way too hard and spending too much effort, too much money. And when you look at the scoreboard on how things are going, it's not getting better. It's actually getting actively worse. Right. And the argument is like, if you're on the blue team, the, the defender team, all you have to do is make one mistake. 
One mistake is all you have to do. And I've heard that argument before. I don't necessarily know that holds water. I see you shaking your head. So so there's a truth there. There's a truth there. So I've been, I've done both offense and defense and I've been doing offense for, you know, super large organizations to super small organizations. And yes, the attacker only needs to get in once, but uh, it was Egypt, um, uh, really renowned hacker. You should check him out if you're not uh, familiar with him. He said, yeah, that's true. You get in once, but once the attacker's in your network, the equation flips and you need to only detect them once to start pulling the thread and unraveling things. And so, I feel um, a winning thought pattern that not enough organizations have is that we should prevent what we can and then detect everywhere and start focusing on what do attackers do once they get on a machine. That's where things become much easier from a detection standpoint, because they're going to be doing things like, hey, is there app locker running on this machine, like in a Windows environment? Nobody asks that ever, ever. Like there's two people who ask that an auditor or like an insurance underwriter or an attacker like Bob in HR is never going to say, hey, y'all, is there app locker running on here? And (laughs) so many times I've gone in where I've um, assisted on an incident response and people are like, man, there is no way that we would detect the attack. And And then, you know, I'm just looking at the default logs And I'm just like, well, hey, did you see that, you know, this user, quote unquote, user made this query and that query has never, ever been done in your organization. And I get that you don't have the tooling to detect that as easily, but like you could and start looking for these artifacts instead of like antivirus lighting you up. Mm. (sighs) But. Okay, but still bring back to the argument of cybersecurity is not important. You're making the, the the larger point that we're doing cybersecurity as a practice wrong. A lot of what we're doing is somewhat pointless and gets in the way of the business making money. Um, so are you saying we keep us we we want to be secure, but we don't want to be secure at the expense of the business being profitable? Well, so this is a tough question to answer, actually. It's a deceptively tough question. What what you're really asking is how much do we invest in cybersecurity? And my belief is that you want good enough security that you have resilience against most attackers and that you can quickly detect and respond to adversaries when they're on their network. Now, where I think a lot of organizations kind of hop the rails is that they build a compliance-only cybersecurity framework. So PCI says that we need to do XYZ. NIST says we have to do XYZ. And like, you know, just for instance, we're a healthcare organization. And HIPAA says we need to do XYZ. They put all that stuff into a bag, shake it, and say, all right, here's what cybersecurity looks like. And the problem, and this is something that many defenders haven't really thought through, is that most adversaries worth their salt in a lab environment will replicate all the compliancy requirements that you need to hit. And frequently, like in my own or for my own consultancy, what we do is we have a lab and we do 100% secure to whatever standard you're going to be doing. 
I don't know a single org that has 100% compliance with these frameworks. So we are actually testing in an environment that's harder than your environment. And so when we get to do the pen test, it's like the shackles are released. Little wonder we're running at a million miles an hour because we've been training harder than the reality. And I want to be clear, I'm a small consultancy. We've been in business for five years. We've got a small crew. If your adversaries aren't doing that, I'd frankly be ashamed and disappointed in them. Well, and you haven't mentioned social engineering either, which I, I think is the the where a lot of I was going to say cyber criminals. It sounds so dramatic, but uh, get their foot in the door. They they do right. some form of social engineering, get on the inside, and then a lot of your uh, either regulatory um, compliant network and security controls, and your compensating controls, because those are the things that make those auditors happy. Those compensating controls, you know, uh, that's how they get around them. Well, I I think. So social engineering or other methods are how attackers get in the initial way, because, you know, and that's one thing that I wish, um, you know, surprise, surprise, Hollywood doesn't get everything right about how it comes to hacking and cybersecurity. And usually attackers will get in with some sort of client side attack, like they'll, you know, send a weaponized link or do a drive by download style attack or a malicious attachment. And, you know, that user as part of their job has to open those attachments. Like, you know, since we're going, you know, sacred cow tipping on this recording, <laughs> um, one that really angers me is we always blame the user, you know, oh, this user opened up a weaponized PDF. Well, if it's in scope in a pen test, one of my favorite things that's like money in the bank in terms of an attack is I will make a malicious PDF. I will deliver it to the sales team and say, hey, folks, um, we're about to open up an RFP. Here's the details on how you're going to bid on that RFP process. If you're interested, open up the PDF, read it, and you have until this day to ask any questions. I want to be clear about this. If that salesperson does not open that PDF, fire them. Yeah. <laughs> because that's their job. They open PDFs up like that all day. Same with like HR people. I'll send them weaponized office documents like, hey, here's this resume or, hey, here's this, um, you know, new rules that are coming out on employee um, like labor law. And you need to know about this. They have to open up those PDFs. So or PDFs and Word documents, I'll send your your um, accounting team an Excel document. So I'm getting in right. The and and that's one of the things that I feel like we've put way too much focus in prevent and not enough in detect. And we need to kind of also shift management's expectations. The attackers will get in and I'm not okay with that. I don't want them in, but we need to start treating that as, hey, you know, that's it's just going to happen. They're going to get in. Let's start focusing on when they get in. Can we detect and collapse that that dwell time. Okay, so the, the, the argument you're really making then is we're spending too much money on on prevention, on you know, building big, thick brick walls that you can dig under or go around in some way and still get in the door. And where we need to focus our spending is on uh, prevention, or not on prevention, but on uh, detection. Now that they're, yep. if we assume they're here, and this isn't a, a terribly new idea within cybersecurity, no. the whole uh, 
a presumption of breach that's been talked about now for for a few years. If you assume you've been breached, then how do you detect that, and then how do you mitigate from there? Uh, mm-hmm. But but that's a little harder to spend money on, Mick, because uh, it's it really is. easy to sell a firewall. Oh, this is the thing that keeps all the bad guys out. Oh, okay, I want to. That's a thing I can visualize it. I can buy it, spend money on, it, and it makes sense to me as a as a CIO maybe. Well, one of the things that I do, and this this also is going to be very controversial, is um, when a client takes us on, if they're willing to really start walking the life less ordinary when it comes to cybersecurity, we chat with the CISO, we chat with their CFO and their CTO, and we say, look, you're going to have to defend against what the attackers are actually doing, but you also have to defend against what the regulators and auditors are expecting of you. Mm. And that's not always the same thing. And so, and I have a very frank conversation with them of, is it okay if we start tracking your regulator as a threat (laughs) on your risk register? And they're just like, Oh, and like some of them are like, yeah, but can that be like an unofficial thing? Cause like the optics on that are going to be insane. And I'm like, all right, that's fine. But as long as you're understanding, like that's the mental model that you need to have, because there are effective things that are in the regulatory frameworks, but not all of them. I mean, you could pare down, I would say you could probably cut most regulatory frameworks down to just a few actions in terms of collapsing patch time micro segment the network and then have good user account hygiene and you are way 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 ahead of the game and it and that's so much lighter than what a lot of the regulatory bodies are expecting of orgs yeah i've dealt with pci dss and the checklist that was involved in things you had to do was ridiculously long and to a certain degree you give up (laughs) and you're like okay, well, I'm going to write in this compensating control and that one, you know, uh, <laughs> Billy or Sally's never going to do this thing. And if we do, it'll be double checked by somebody else. Sure. But yeah, actually complying with the regulations doesn't mean you're secure. It just means that you've checked all the boxes in a list. And I know for a fact when we were done implementing it, okay, th- this is fine, but it's not secure. Like we have to add these other things that are not even in the compliance checklist. Yes to make sure it's actually going to secure us against attackers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that that's where you can potentially have conversations with your pen testers and say, hey, you know, how can we really kick the tires and see, you know, here's what our security stance is right now. Do we do we tick all these boxes for hitting PCI compliance? Like, do the controls actually work? And then two, is there any way that we can repurpose some of these to provide meaningful defense against what the adversaries are really doing? I think it's a question of motive, right? What's the reason behind deploying the security or ticking the boxes in the checklist? If you're worried that you won't get that certification so you can't do business, then your motivation is to tick the boxes, not necessarily implement good cybersecurity. If I'm talking to my CFO, they care about ticking the boxes so they can continue to do business without exactly. getting penalized by whatever organization. So how do I, as a, as a cybersecurity professional or just someone in IT, how do I change that conversation so that they might care about both or does it even matter? 
So that's a that's going to likely be a per organization culture question. You know, what do they care about? In my experience, they want to do what's right as long as it's not too burdensome. And so I think that, you know, for the last decade or so, I've been trying to reframe the conversation of IT and cybersecurity can and should be about revenue protection. And if you start thinking about it in that way, there's, you know, reasons to invest in it. If you see IT and cybersecurity as something we have to do in order to do business, you're a cost center and you're funded appropriately. But if you're revenue protection, well, that's a thing and orgs know how to accommodate for that. And so let's let's start doing things appropriately. And that also like you'll start seeing orgs when they have these conversations, they're they're doing security very differently. The difference between monitoring a web service or a web server, you know, looking at those logs from a security standpoint and also looking at these logs to see, oh, hey, you know, not enough people are putting stuff into the shopping cart. Let's make an alert from for an attack versus like a SQL injection. And let's do an alert to the marketing team because we're not getting enough clients per hour or enough orders per hour. Very thin difference. The alarm goes to just different teams. I've got a couple of my clients who actually have a SOAR, a security orchestration and automated response. So when the SIM, the logging system receives notice that not enough purchases were made, the security automation response notifies the marketing team and will place additional ad impression uh, campaigns into the checkout box. And it's just for the security team, or I'm sorry, the marketing team to double check, like, yeah, do we want to spend this? Because they didn't want it fully automated. And they have like a human circuit breaker, and then they can just press go. So that's what, I, and that's why I mean cybersecurity isn't important. It shouldn't be important. It shouldn't be a separate discipline. It, it should be baked into everything and kind of just go away in a lot of ways. Let's pause the podcast for a bit. Research suggests that 17 out of 20 people will click away due to buffering or stalling, and I am definitely one of those 17. There's lots of stuff to watch out there, and there's no reason to wait around. If your company delivers online media, consider CDN 77. They are a globally distributed content delivery network, and they're optimized for video on demand as well as live video. CDN 77 is not some newcomer to the scene. They are used today by many popular sites and apps, including Udemy, ESL Gaming, Live Sports, and various social media platforms. And that makes sense to me. CDN 77 has scale. They have a massive network with distribution points all over the globe and plenty of redundancy. Well, that means you shouldn't have problems. What happens when you do need tech support? CDN 77 offers 24-7 support staffed by a team of engineers. No chatbots, no tickets getting routed around queues while no one actually does anything. Just no-nonsense dedication to your issue to get your online media back to 100%. To prove that CDN 77 will work for your content delivery, visit cdn77.com slash packetpushers to get a free trial with no duration or traffic limits. That's cdn77.com slash packetpushers for a free trial you can push hard for serious proof-of-concept testing. cdn77.com slash packetpushers. And now back to this week's episode. 
but there's still an element from your Twitter thread. I mean, okay, let me back up a second. Sure. The working title of this podcast is cybersecurity isn't important. That is how you led and you provocatively phrased the the lead into that Twitter thread of yours. And we've been talking for the last 20 minutes about how important cybersecurity is. <laughs> the opposite of that. And, and mostly with an emphasis on, you know, rethinking how we, uh, in the con- thinking about it in the context of the business, I think. But there's another element here of maybe we're overdoing it, uh, adding too much security, spending too much and maybe if we get breached because we didn't spend as much as we should have, cyber insurance, maybe that that covers us, uh, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that's more of a businessy way to think about security. Um, is that, first of all, Mick, is that a fair assessment of some of the points you were making in the Twitter thread? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I wish there were a visual way to con- convey this, but, in, you know, we're in a podcast what I will do with my clients is build up, hey, here's the attacks you're facing. And then each column I'll show like, here's your different defensive, you know, preventative and detective controls that you have. You know, where are you spending too much time and effort and start talking about which ones we can jettison? And then also, what are you missing and where can we add things as appropriate to address these particular issues that you're worried about? So it it's... I think that many orgs, especially in more heavily regulated industries, will default to let's spend more so that we are covered. And we as a consultant and as somebody who used to work in the corporate environment, I see I saw that all the time when, you know, hey, we've got these two vendors. Let's go with this name brand because name brand. And there were a lot of innovators that actually had superior product better support that would languish because they didn't have that name recognition and they needed to be able to defend, Hey, we, you know, we went with name brand. So that's tough. And then to your point about cyber insurance or just other insurance packages, um, helping address things. I, I am hugely in favor of this. And the reason why is, is it just boils down to math. You know, you could spend a million dollars to protect $10. It's stupid, but you can do it. Yeah. And so what you're shooting for, or at least initially what I was shooting for early in my career was, is there a way that I can get spend to just match the risk of that thing being exposed like the, and hit that inflection point? But that's dumb because there's no profit in that. So what you really want to do is shift your risk a little, you know, I don't know how you're going to model this graph, but you're going to shift your risk one way or the other. And what you're trying to do is lower your costs and have insurance that covers the rest. And you're hoping that you have a resilient enough security fabric that you will detect in your your occurrences of having to pay the de- the deductibles or minimal, but, you know, predictable. But you don't just buy a cyber insurance plan and, you know, get that. There's still expectations of the insurance company of what your security architecture is. So, are, you know, are we kind of overstating how we get to a, in, in the model you just described, get to a profitable place? Well, again, this is, you're defending against different entities you're in this case you have to defend against the underwriters of your policy 
And they're looking to see, is your program mature enough that you're not going to be calling in, you know, every other day saying, hey, it happened again. <laughs> so a big, big part of that is proving to them that you have the prevention and detection that we've been talking about. And in, I want to be clear, there are some more risk adverse insurance uh, underwriters out there that ask for things that are frankly unreasonable and their policy coverage just isn't where you need it to be. Um, th it would be another whole uh, podcast episode for me ranting about how cyber insurance works. It's not at all like what you're used to. If you think like auto insurance or homeowners insurance, the equivalent analogy and even this is probably too broad is if you buy a cyber insurance policy and then if that were like buying a car insurance policy and you get in a car wreck and then you like call them up and say hey i got in a wreck they'd be like oh well unfortunately you're only covered for you know wrecks by semis that are painted orange <laughs> you know like it's very very niche and the escape clauses are really rough and also a lot of orgs are relying on the you know they get sold like oh you know buy our policy and you'll get these special you know response ninjas that'll rappel down a helicopter and help you in your moment of hour your hour of need right and that's true except when it's a broad occurring event so with log4j, there were some issues with log4j. Um, and what happened is a lot of orgs were making these calls saying like, hey, we need help, we need this. SolarWinds, same thing. And they said, cool story, you're number 478 in line because we've got all these other policies that we're tending to. Right, and more and more that is the case that there's these open source projects that are used by a massive number of people and if there is a bug found in one of those open source projects, it's going to impact the industry as a whole. It's not going to be just you got breached. It's, oh, no, yeah, you're like you said, you're number 4,362 in, in the line of people that now need help. So I think that pushes the, the problem back a little bit to um, open source development and the, the problems with the fact that everybody's using these, but nobody's necessarily maintaining them with the level of attention that they that they need. I, I, I would shift. I would shift the focus slightly. It's not open source. It's it's monoculture because if it's open source or not, it's can I make an exploit that has outsized impact? Right. So um, that's why we see people attacking Windows all the time. Windows is no more or less secure. And in, in fact, it really pains this lifelong Linux admin to say it. Press, deep breaths. <laughs> And maybe I'll get kicked out of Usenix for saying this, but Windows is actually more secure than almost every Linux that's out there now. Like when you install it default. Oh, man, that was the sound of a, a thousand people unsubscribing to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the hate mail I'm going to get, the trolls I'm going to get. But but it's true, you know, it, attackers go for Windows because why attack some edge thing now if you know i need to attack that thing for some victory condition i would but if i want biggest bang for my buck i'm gonna hit everything and and that's that's a bigger problem that we have you know i think that um the problem is we've got such monoculture in our ecosystems 
And it's actually worse in the cloud. You know, one of the things that I'm saddened by is that, you know, a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, how did you do this attack against this infrastructure? Because I have your, you know, I, in my lab, in my cloud environment, I have your container, right? Like how often do people actually custom build their own OSs? And I realize that that's insane, right? Like you shouldn't be doing that. But if you're running stock, you know, Alpine, if you're running core OS, I know what those defaults are. I know how to play around with that because I got it in my own lab. And so we need to start thinking about, you know, how do we leverage these realities? And I I know this sounds really bizarre, but keeping with my theme, the attackers are going to get in when it comes to the cloud. You know, when was the last time here? Here's a pop quiz for y'all. When was the last time you said, hey, what are my S3 buckets that are out there? You never do an, an AWS CLI S3 LS. You don't. You just use that bucket because it's there and you know it exists. Mm. So start thinking about like what are these weird like forms of enumeration and post-exploitation reconnaissance that attackers do because they don't know our environment and get over the fact that, you know, these containers are, you know, read only. The attackers just using that as a jumping off point. Still, in your argument on Twitter, Mick, we keep Uh going back to all the security things we should be doing, but there was still an element in your Twitter thread of it's okay to let some things go because at some point it's just not worth spending the money on it. Where where, where do you draw that line? Well, that's a tough thing. Um, And that's where I'm actually, frankly, glad that as a consultant, I don't make that decision. That's really going to be up to... A couple folks at an organization that should be a choice between the chief risk officer, the chief financial officer, and probably the CISO. Um, you again, as I said, you can spend a million dollars to protect ten. So figure out what is enough security, what is enough spend, and try to stick the landing there. And then when you get breached, you need to have your here's everything we're doing. And be able to flip that that you know storybook open and say what more should we have done? And I, I want to be clear: part of the way of making that story a sellable story to regulators and others is that you see it as an ongoing journey. Hey, here's where we're at, and we're spending you know this amount to make this next change in the next quarter, the next year. Security should be a journey, not a destination. And so, you know, I'll own it. There is a certain amount of hand waving. I'm clearly passionate about cybersecurity. I'm still advocating that we do cybersecurity. It's just the way we're doing it is unimportant and ineffective. Uh, Okay. But one of the things that's kind of bugged me about this thread here is it feels like we're talking about it from a, in, in the business terms, money. We can build a spreadsheet, we can build a model, and we can determine what's worth or not worth doing from a bottom line perspective. But there's another argument to be made here that businesses have a moral, not necessarily a legal or a profit-driven obligation to be secure. So is there a, a point of discussion to have there around the morality of our absolutely. security models? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so a couple questions that immediately spring to mind is, 
what is this organization doing? You know, if they're a water treatment plant, they absolutely have some moral obligations that go beyond just normal cybersecurity. Same in the healthcare sector, you know, in the financial sector, they too, you know, like if they don't take care, you know, yes, they're going to get fined, but also like, you know, grandma and grandpa's retirement plan just will evaporate potentially. So we have, but the flip is, uh, you know, unlike say like raw sewage getting dumped into a stream somewhere, we have, you know, insurance for businesses so that if grandma and grandpa's insurance just evaporates, they should in theory be able to get some relief. And so I do think that there's an, uh, an ethical element and that's really hard to quantify, but that's why we're seeing at the board level, there's these equity and inclusion committees that are now being formed to try to track and quantify that. Because until fairly recently, most organizations just by the demands of capitalism, especially like um, ones with publicly traded stock, the way the system works, they're psychopathic. And that's not good or bad. It's just that's how they are because they're focused on the stock price. Devil may care for everything else. And so there's a societal rec recognition that they do need to start doing things like equity, inclusion. There's things like environmental issues that need to be addressed. So I see that as hopefully another future evolution. Fingers crossed. I don't know if that'll happen anytime soon. Right. And you've mentioned a few times how regulatory and compliance stuff could be another adversary. It's not necessarily effective in improving cybersecurity. But at the same time, you mentioned like, you know, security should be baked into things. Like when you buy your car, you expect the seatbelts to work and for the airbag to deploy. And the reason you can expect that is because there's the National Highway and Traffic Safety Administration who said, hey, car manufacturers, you actually have to start doing these things and we're going to test you on it. So do you think another regulatory body would be the solution? Or is there like, how do we actually get security baked in in the way that you're thinking? I don't know. I don't know. And this is a tough one where this is beyond me. Um, the whole reason that the National Highway Trace Transportation Safety Administration was formed was because activists were saying, hey, like when you get into a low speed crash, you shouldn't die. <laughs> and like is bonkers as it sounds, there was a ton of pushback. And, you know, maybe we do need to get there. I don't know. I, I know that the industry is terrified of that. You know, um, the whole reason um, that we have PCI, flawed though it is, is because in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was bad. I mean, the amount of breaches that were happening. I, I worked at a company that was providing services to this sector and the amount of breaches that happened. They weren't big, big breaches. They were small breaches, but they were all over the place. And so um, there were some standards enacted, which eventually became, got folded into PCI. And things are better, as, as flawed as PCI is, things are better. And that's an industry response to avoid government regulation. Maybe that's a path forward. I don't know. Well, so, so here's a story that was published, a press release from the Federal Trade Commission in the United States um, that really relates to this. They have 
I don't know. I can't say that they, they, no one went to prison. There was no court case. It's not that sort of a thing. But the FTC got ugly with uh, the company Drizzly, which is an Uber company. And uh, James Corey, um, Relis Reyes, uh, but James was an officer in that, in the Drizzly organization. And the FTC alleges that Drizzly and Reyes failed to implement basic security measures. And they, they said specifically some things, didn't use two-factor authentication for GitHub. They didn't limit employee access to personal data. They didn't develop adequate written security policies. They didn't train employees to use those procedures that apparently weren't written. And, and more, they, uh, they documented a bunch of things that were inferior about the security in Drizzly that they feel should have been in place to prevent the breach and the exposure of public information. And the penalties that the FTC imposed were kind of laughable. None of them were financial. Mm-hmm. The FTC waved the flag and said, hey, there could be financial penalties under certain circumstances up to $40,000 per, you know, incident, person implement, uh, impacted, et cetera. Uh, but all the, but there were none of those. The enforcement action was, okay, guys, you have to destroy unnecessary data and prove to us that you did it. You got to limit future data collection, disclose what you're collecting and why, uh, implement an information security program, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if uh, James Corey Reyes goes to other companies, all of the specific, um, all of the specific enforcement actions that were applied there will follow him to whatever company he goes to. So he's got kind of a, it's like a, almost a personal stigma. They're really going after him specifically. I don't know why. Maybe he, maybe he was a bad guy in Twitter that no one liked. And so he was an easy target or something. I'm not sure. So this isn't, doesn't feel like it's got a lot of teeth, but it was public. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that happened, um, and it's pretty recent. So maybe that marks um, a change, a change in view from the government perspective that the industry needs to pay attention to. Maybe. I would contend that it probably doesn't, especially for larger organizations. I've been trying like hell to find organizations that have gone under due to regulatory fines or even just you know, breach info. And there's, I've found a handful of small orgs, but in every instance, these orgs appeared to have been teetering on the edge Mm. due to other issues. And this was just the thing that pushed them over the edge. But if you want a real sobering view on the economic realities of being a breach and how like public regulation impacts it, in 2015, the Harvard Business Review did a study, and it's, I forget the title, it's something like, Why Breaches Don't Impact Stock Price. And so there's a slight depression that takes place, and it lasts two to three, well, yeah, two to three quarters, I believe, and then stock continues going up. And so, you know, I don't know, like, it, it becomes very, very difficult to argue you know, hey, you've got to do this because we're protecting your org. And the org's like, yeah, cool story, bro. Thank mm. you. We got this. And they will take the hit and then move on. And that that that's what you're up against, really, is, hey, if we get hit, we can still function as an org. So what we really need is to have a decent strategy to stop most attacks. And then for all the rest, we'll be like, look, we're doing all this stuff. You got us. Mm. Mm. And I think that that gets to another axe that I grind against in, in Twitter all the time is, you know, we all hear that 
the um, APT, you know, APT, what's APT stand for? Advanced persistent threat. They're not advanced. They're just adequate. They're doing enough in order to get into your environment, do their fraud and get out. That's what that, like, why would an adversary do else? And so I don't know, like I, I, you know, the, I will say though, with this drizzly thing, it could potentially be interesting. There are some brands that this would worry them, but for most, I don't think it would. Right. If the worst thing that happens is that consumers hear about it, as long as they're not actually inconvenienced by it. Yeah. Then it's, I look I look exactly what you're talking about. I look at companies that have had major breaches over the last five to 10 years, right? And if you look at their stock prices, almost all of them actually have seen gains. Correct. So what's the financial incentive behind that to avoid a breach as long as the consumer can still buy your widget at some point? Then there is no incentive. Yeah. Well, I'm 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 so jaded at this point that I can actually write the PR statement that Drizzly is going to write if they haven't done so already. And it's we really appreciate the guidance and expertise that the FTC has given us. And we look forward to collaborating with them on preventing this issue from continuing to manifest and solve any other potential future issues. Drizzly protects security very seriously, and then they'll talk about all the controls and how much money they spend, blah, 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 blah. And for anyone impacted, here's your credit reporting for one year. Uh, <laughs> that's, all. That's, that's how it goes. Here's what you get, even though you can yeah. get your credit reports for free. Yeah. Well, it's a credit uh, lock Protection. monitoring type stuff. It's like an enhanced thing, but it's basically, you know, like if you and I were to buy this online, it would be like, you know, $40. But um, there's actually bulk resellers of this now, and it's something like fractions of a dollar. Right. Like, yeah. I think of Equifax was trading at maybe like $100 right before their big breach. And um, at their peak in 20, at the end of last year, they were trading at almost $300 a share. <sighs> so, yeah. <laughs> They're not That's discouraging. Actually, actually, now that tells me that should be my strategy by the post breach dip and then <laughs> and then ride the wave especially if it's not ransomware like ransomware is its own animal because it actually does inconvenience customers that, yeah yeah that one's different that one that that's actually an operational attack that happens over cybersecurity or over the cyberspace it's not it's not i don't know we need to start treating that as a different thing yeah but if you just leaked data eh, it's probably okay but okay. Let, let's let's try to end on a positive note okay so I'm going to ask you, what what can a security professional do if they're in that position to implement less security, but be more effective and also maybe communicate their needs up to the, the CISO or whoever their uh, manager is? So a lot of it is how you communicate with senior leadership and what senior leadership really cares about is, are we going to jail? That's their first question. And then their next one is, are we going to get fined? And then what everything that you do is, hey, we're not going to jail and here's why. And you, you tell them, here's the things we're doing. We're not going to get fined or we're likely to not get as fined as much because here's what we're doing. Here's the narrative. And that helps. 
The other thing that you can do as a um, cybersecurity professional is actually find those instances where cybersecurity actually helps the business. Every cybersecurity professional will say, hey, you got to patch, patch, patchity, patch, patch, patch. How many pros out there are helping organizations build regression tests so that they can have a patch validation program that's fully automated? You know, um, and it doesn't even have to cost a ton of money. Like you can go out and get Apache's JMeter and it will record any arbitrary transaction. You record that transaction. You can run it and rerun it. Make sure that you're good. It's good for unit testing. It's good for load testing. But when patches come out, you can validate that those scripts still work. Apply the patch, run those. And if the transaction still works, guess what? That patch didn't impact that transaction and so you can roll things out you know that's that's something where security should be like actively helping along and you know don't just tell people to do things make it easier for them to do those things i that is the key right there is don't just point the finger because that's most security teams i ever dealt with were telling me you go do this you go implement this but if they were there with me if they were shifting left with me yep <laughs> instead of just pushing the burden that is huge that's huge. also um i've radically shifted on how i do things so and i'll own it i without this kind of caveat i would be a hypocrite of the highest order but i run that agent i run that configuration on my own machine before i have somebody else do it and so I can look them dead in the eye and say, hey, you know, I didn't even notice this thing and you won't either. And here's why. Um, and that that brings like a moral authority there that's lacking otherwise, you know. Um, then I also the next thing I do is I uh, work with the executives and get them doing that thing. And once I once I've proved that it works on us, it works on the executives Anybody who wants exceptions now has an uphill battle of like, I'm more special than the executives. Are you though? Are you really? <laughs> well, Mick, this has been a great discussion. I've enjoyed this very much. Now, if you're out there listening, you heard us reference Mick's Twitter thread. Um, Mick mentioned why data breaches don't hurt stock prices, an article on the Harvard Business Review and the article about the FTC taking action against Drizzly. All that is linked in the show notes. You can find those at day2cloud.io or Packet Pushers. Dot net. Uh, Mick, if people want to follow you or interact with you, how can they do that? On Twitter at Better Safety Net. On Twitter at Better Safety Net, indeed. And uh, thanks to you for listening. Thanks, Nick, for appearing. Uh, virtual high fives if you are out there having tuned in. You are awesome for making it all the way to the end. If you have suggestions for future shows, Ned and I want to hear them, you can hit us up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow or fill out the request form on Day2Cloud.io. Just go to Day2Cloud.io. It says the word request. Click it. There's a little form and it'll send us your thing. And then we'll go research that topic and talk about it. And if you'd like to interact with our community, you do not have to scream into the technology void alone. The Packet Pushers Podcast Network, we have a free Slack group that is open to everyone, whether you work in an industry, uh, whether you're just a practitioner, everybody can join this free Slack group, packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. It is a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories, and solve problems together. Go ahead, packetpushers.net slash Slack. I'm in there. You can You can see me in there and chat with me and get into my DMs and all that weird stuff. Until then... Just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.